people or so that went through the the uh, corn maze, and so that was awesome. The weather held out. We had some sun, and and it ducked behind the clouds sometime. But early last week there was there was rain, and so that was kind of getting some of us a little bit concerned. Is this going to run off? You know, the corn maze. Are we going to be able to walk through this? And uh, but things dried off, and we had a we had a great day. The sun was even out for a while, and and so. Uh, but for a moment, forget about the concern of the rain. Was anyone concerned on Friday night that the sun would burn out and we would not be able to have the event? Did any of you think about that? There's, there's something really serious to be concerned about. It's unlikely, but you know it's possible. It's possible. The sun is a star. It's a big burning ball of gas, of light, and stars burn out. If our sun burned out, we are all doomed. I don't know if you know the impact of what that would be. I read in, on popular science that if the sun burned out within a week, the surface temperature of the earth would drop to zero degrees. Uh, in one year, it would drop to negative 100 degrees. Now, the top layers of the ocean would freeze over, which actually sounds bad, but in a sense offers an insulation to the deepest parts of the ocean, which are going to stay more warm, which led popular science to this conclusion. Quote, humans could live in submarines in the deepest and warmest parts of the ocean, but a more attractive option might be nuclear or geothermal-powered habitats. I will go with the geothermal-powered habitat. I'm not real in the confined spaces deep beneath the ocean, but in case you think that, you know, the light of the sun, uh, that, that it wouldn't totally ruin things, uh, this will squash that because we can't forget that the sun, without the sun there is no gravitational pull and that, that our earth would be slung into outer space, uh, immediately opening up the possibility of us colliding with the moon, so hopefully we would miss that, and guaranteeing catastrophe within our atmosphere. Earthquakes would break loose, tidal waves, tsunamis, all because this weird thing is happening within our, our atmosphere. It all sounds very nice, I'm sure. To put it mildly, we need the sun. And we need the light of the sun. Light is life. Even more than the light of the sun, we need the light of Jesus who holds the universe in place. John 8 contains one of the most famous sayings of Jesus, I am the light of the world. And as we unpack that today, I think that you'll see that Jesus is this burning mass that gives light and life and keeps us from spinning out of control in life. Living in darkness forever, Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. Here we are in 8.12. John 8.12, Jesus was still in Jerusalem during this great feast of booths, the annual eight-day fall festival commemorating Israel's trek from Egypt and the bondage of Egypt into Cain in the land of promise. People were everywhere, makeshift huts were everywhere, and it was this awesome celebration in Jerusalem, a party, if you will. And if you remember, during the, the festival, they had a water libation ceremony where they took water from the pool of Siloam and they paraded it in grand procession up into the temple and they, they poured it out. 
And this is where Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He is the living water. But there was another associated ceremony. It was associated with this great festival, and it was a light ceremony. Imagine now that you're a Jew in Jerusalem in the first century, and you are at this festival, this Feast of Booths. People celebrating everywhere, there's dancing everywhere, there's music everywhere. And in the evening of the first day, you enter into the court of women, which was in the temple, one of the outer courts, and, and uh, the light ceremony begins. Four massive pillars, these candelabras, uh, were, were lit in the temple, probably about 75 feet tall, and they were blazing with firelight in the night sky so that Jerusalem was lit. All around you men dance with torches, and they're singing, and they're celebrating, and the temple is radiating this great light. This happened every night, and since the temple was on a mountain, the blaze could be seen throughout the city, and as tradition says, that this blaze from Jerusalem could be seen from miles away. The firelight commemorated the presence and guidance of God. His great glory radiating from the temple and shining for the world. And if you understand Exodus 13, the festival makes a whole lot more sense. Exodus 13 describes the Lord going before the people in a a cloud, in the wilderness, leading them in a great pillar of smoke by day and then in the night in this great pillar, this great column of fire giving light to God's people. God was with His people in a massive pillar of fire, a light leading them into the promised land. The light of God's presence was their navigation system. Now, I just want you to think about that and let that sink in of what was happening in the Exodus as they're in the wilderness and what they're celebrating at the Feast of Booths. This light was so significant to the Feast of of booths because of the history of Israel and it helped them to remember the light of God's glory and the light of God's presence with his people. God's word connects God with light. David wrote in Psalm 27:1, "The Lord is my light and my salvation." Isaiah penned this famous prophecy for to us a child is born To us a son is given, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Well, it's fascinating because as several lines earlier, Isaiah prophesied this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shined. Now, if you jump ahead to Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, you have the messianic prophecy of the servant of God that he would send. And God said in this prophecy, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This great servant that God would send would come as the light. Can you see where this is going? Some historians say Jews quoted Isaiah 42.6 during the Feast of Booths. 
a magnificent light for all nations, a light that would open the eyes of the blind and liberate the captives of darkness. And that light was coming. That light was anticipated. Now, if you transport yourself to first century Judaism at that Feast of Booths, and you just take yourself back there, you can almost feel the energy. You can almost feel the enthusiasm and the partying that was going on in this light as the light from the temple overcomes the darkness of Jerusalem and spreads throughout, enlightening the the city of Jerusalem. It was during that feast, it was in that temple court of women right by the treasury where the offerings were taken, likely during the light ceremony that Jesus famously announced to the people, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What impeccable timing Jesus had. Jesus was saying He is the glorious fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. He is the anticipated light in the darkness. He is the fire of salvation that leads to eternal life. He is the great shining light on them. He is the light for the nations who will open the eyes of the blind and liberate the captives of darkness. He is the very presence of God in the world. What a moment, and what a thing for Jesus to say in that moment. It was an unmistakable claim of divinity. This is the second of Jesus' seven I am statements, and each one is significant because they all have this in common. Ego, a me, I am, I am. God said in Exodus 3 that he was I am who I am, and Jesus said I am to identify himself. Now, what did Jesus mean by I am the light? Well, if you keep the Feast of Booths in mind, you have all that significance, the historical significance of of the presence of God with his people leading them in the wilderness, and Jesus is a fulfillment of that, so keep that in mind. Jesus is the very presence and light of God, but also light shines Light radiates. Back in John 1.5, John described Jesus as the light shining in the darkness of the world. Now, Jesus is not some weird bioluminescent man, like a glow worm or a firefly that he's just pulsating this weird light like he was in a nuclear facility or something like we see in the movies. That's not what's going on here. Um, Jesus shines the brightness of his person the brightness of his character, the brightness of his attributes and qualities. His words are light. His actions are light. His life is light. And what does Jesus shine? Look at verse 19. Jesus said to them, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. So if you know Christ, you know God the Father. They are unified. They are one. The Son and the Father are one. John said in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. And just after that, he said, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. If you know the Son, you know the Father. Jesus told Philip in the upper room in that intimate moment with his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. There's our answer. 
There's our answer. Jesus shines the Father. Jesus shines the glory of God. Jesus is the light, the effulgence, the radiance of the glory of the Father. The author of Hebrews describes Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. When we look at the light of Jesus, we see the light of God in the flesh. We see God's glory. If we know and experience Jesus, then we know and experience God. Does God exist? Does God exist? There are plenty of people who say He doesn't and plenty of people that think the proof that they give from science is conclusive and ends the debate and there is no God. Is Does God exist? And if so, what is He like? If you see the light of Jesus, you see the existence of God. You have your answer. Jesus said, I am the light, but He went further. I am the light of the world. Now, the world can mean different things depending on the context certainly it means the nations but in one sense it represents this kingdom of darkness the world is this kingdom of evil this realm that is in opposition to God and we see that in verse 12 of our text this morning we see that back in John 5 or 1 5 rather and we see that in John 3 19 and 20 which says this the light has come into the world And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Now, why would that be? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Why are so many crimes committed under the cover of darkness? Why don't we want people to shine the knowledge on where we've messed up? We tend to want to hide that, tend to want to push it away, tend to want to cover it under darkness. But the light exposes these things, and so people love their wicked deeds, and so they stay under the cover of darkness so that the light doesn't expose them. The world is a society of darkness. The world is a society of wickedness, even ignorance, Jesus came into that darkness and he shined the glory of God. He was like the the bold firelight on the temple mount giving light to the nations in Jerusalem. Therefore, as the light of the world, Jesus is the promised Messiah. That's the point. He is the one we've been waiting for to bring light, to bring healing, to bring hope. He is the light for the nations as Isaiah described it. He shines the truth of God, the power of God, the effect of God, the grace and mercy of God which enlightens the obscure soul and rescues and liberates souls from the spiritual darkness. Jesus is the light. He is the exclusive light. He is the only light. The world cannot walk in the light of God Unless the great light of Christ shines in the darkness of the heart. Folks, what we see in our culture and the brokenness of the world is not the brokenness in and of itself. The brokenness is the brokenness of the heart. That's why we see these these crimes and these violences and these atrocities and broken families and broken marriages and, and all that we see. That's because the heart is broken. That's just a symptom of the bigger problem in the heart. 
Being the light of the world, that doesn't mean that everybody follows Jesus. It doesn't mean that everybody believes in Him. It doesn't mean everybody receives and accepts the truth. Many obviously reject Jesus, and they will perish in the darkness. Yet Jesus is the only light available. Jesus is the only option to make sense of all this. One pastor says, it is Jesus or darkness. And I love how, how just clear-cut that is. Listen, in the dead of winter, your power is either on and you have light and heat, or it is off and you freeze in the dark. But at least the venison stays good. All right, don't have to empty the... So if Jesus is going to make a statement like, I am the light of the world, he needs to back up that statement. You can't just say something like that and leave and expect everybody to embrace it. You have to show yourself, and Jesus did. The claims of Jesus are indisputable. They're unassailable. They're irrefutable. Here's why. The evidence that attests to Jesus as the light of the world is beyond all reasonable doubt. Jesus left no room for doubt except the hardness of the human heart. Now, some could argue with me, you've never lived in Pittsburgh. What do you even say to that? Well, I'm glad you feel that way, but I know I have. I mean, I, what do you do to prove something like that? I'm 100% sure that I lived in Pittsburgh. I can give precise details about it. I can describe my house for you, where we lived, the exact point where we lived, how to get to downtown Pittsburgh. It doesn't matter how many people agree with me or disagree with me, the reality still states I lived in Pittsburgh. But Jesus didn't say he lived in Pittsburgh. Jesus said, I am God and God sent me. That's a slightly bigger Declaration, all right? How do you substantiate that? Well, let's see. Look at verse 13. It says, so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, you have to make an important connection here. Jesus said something back in John 5 that is important to remember. This is how Jesus sounded back in John 5. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He said that. And I think what Jesus meant by that is my testimony is not deemed to be true. My testimony is not considered true because you are looking for multiple witnesses. So if I just come along and say it, you're not going to consider that true. He wasn't saying it's not true because it's just me saying it. Plus he had more than, than one witness. He wouldn't consider it true. They are accusing Jesus and trying to discredit his testimony. So this is how Jesus answered. Verse 14. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. I'm telling you the truth when I say I am the light of the world. Now what defense did Jesus give for that? You have to read the rest of the verse. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Jesus knew they didn't. They didn't even know about Bethlehem, let alone God. Jesus was absolutely right. They knew very little about him. Now, can we all just agree for a moment that claiming to be God is bold? That is bold. You either substantiate that by supernatural phenomena or grab the straight jacket. You know what I'm saying? 
Jesus continued, verse 15 and 16, saying, write to the Pharisees, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. You see, the Pharisees were evaluating Jesus Christ based on the flesh. Based on the externals. Based on what they could see. Based on a very limited knowledge. And on the other hand, Jesus doesn't judge or evaluate people in that way. His judgment transcends the flesh. His judgment is spiritual. His judgment is true because he judges together with God the Father. They are united in their judgment. He's he's not making his claims alone. It's not just him speaking. D.A. Carson wrote this, Light bears witness to itself and its source is entirely supportive of that witness. The light bears witness to itself But the source of the light also agrees with the testimony that the light bears. Light can do nothing but bear accurate witness about itself. Light just shines and there's the witness. You see it shining. And the source of the light does as well. It it attests. Doesn't the sun bear witness to daylight? Someone may reject daylight. I don't believe it's light outside. All right, I guess you're entitled to your opinion, but it is very difficult to invalidate daylight when the sun is shining on you. Same with the sun shining from the Father. Let's keep going. Verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, In your law, it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. There are two matching testimonies. And then verse 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Imagine Jesus, the light of the world, saying to you, you don't know God. You don't know me or God. How do you even ask, where is your father? You wouldn't know him if you saw him. Because you're looking at me And you're missing the Father. You're missing the point. I'm directing you to Him. Jesus actually thought that He was the light of the world. He also thought that God agreed with Him that He was the light of the world. To refute Jesus at this point, you'd need to really know Jesus well, and you'd also have to really know the Father well. Or else, what do you have to say? If you don't know Jesus and you don't know the Father, what what are you arguing about? You have ignorance. They didn't know Jesus and they didn't know God. And so their opinion was based upon what they wanted to be true. The Pharisees were monotheists. Keep that in mind. They believed in God. They believed in the supernatural work of God. These were not agnostics. These were not atheists. These were not materialists. These were not relativists. They believed in God. What made them the authority on Jesus? How could they refute the King of glory in His light? Now let's assume for a moment that these men who were interacting with Jesus were 21st century 
agnostics who trusted in science as the irrefutable truth. Just think about that for a moment. That's not what was happening, but I'm just saying, just imagine that it was for a moment. In order for Jesus to substantiate his claims to be the light of the world, his claims to be God, he'd have to break the laws of science, showing supremacy over science, right? If science is God and you trump science, you must be God. Any old crackpot can show up and say they're God and that God agrees with them. Why do they care about some insane guy that's walking around Jerusalem saying, I'm God, I'm, I'm, I'm him, I'm the Messiah? Here's why. Because they saw him do things that they couldn't explain. And people were beginning to follow him. He was amassing a new way. Many people were going after him. They were threatened. Please listen carefully to this. There's nothing quite so blinding as furious jealousy mixed with ignorance and an inability to refute the opposing argument. What happens when you know someone has you cornered and they're smarter than you, they have all the answers and you have none and you have to take them on? What do you do? You might sling out a couple names. I mean, that's all you got because you know you're had. Well, you're stupid, you know, you, you have nothing. You start to throw a shoe at them or something, I don't know. And that's the idea, if you can't beat them, kill them. Let's keep in mind why Jesus was already famous by John 8. A lot has happened. John 1, the greatest first century prophet born to a woman who had a huge following, John the Baptist, bore direct testimony to Jesus and directed his disciples to him. John 2, Jesus changed water into wine at a wedding, which was a very big occasion. People knew about him changing water into wine. With authority, Jesus cleansed the temple, no small feat. And let's not forget John 2, 22, 2.23, rather, which says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus did indisputable public miracles. You can't argue them away. You just have to say, okay, that happened. Not one isolated miracle, many miracles. Miracle upon miracles. They couldn't ignore what he was doing. They believed his miracles. They had to, but they rejected him. John 5, Jesus healed a long-term paralytic in public. The Jews knew about it. They didn't even dispute it. Likely some of the same Jews were there to see that miracle that are here talking to him in John 8. John 6, Jesus did the most public and monumental miracle that he performed on earth. He fed upwards of 25,000 Jewish people from a meager lunch of fish and bread. Thousands of people encountered his miracle. Thousands of people encountered his miracles. And on that particular day, they saw the miracle of the feeding of that many people and they wanted to seize him and make him king because they saw the, the supernatural power that he had. Then he walked across the lake just to put an exclamation point on it all. And they were confused about that. Where, when did you come here across the lake that we didn't see you sail in a boat? 
John 7, Jesus taught in the temple at the Feast of Booze, and the Jews listened to his teaching, and they marveled. They marveled because his knowledge was so extraordinary and exceptional. They had never encountered someone who spoke with the authority of Jesus. Supernatural knowledge, supernatural power, supernatural signs, supernatural wonders. And he says he is God? Hmm, that's worth thinking about. Thousands encountered his miracles. Many believed his enemies failed to have any evidence to falsify his miracles or teaching. Even unbelievers were astonished at what this man could teach and his knowledge. And and when you take all that into consideration here in John 8, it becomes very clear that the Pharisees were choosing to disregard the overwhelming authentication that Jesus already had let alone what was coming. The only thing that they could do in attempt to suppress his indisputable power and compassion and authority and truth was to plot to kill him. And guess what they did? They couldn't refute his teaching, never denied his miracles, knew they bore false witness and didn't even deny his resurrection when it came. They just hated him and they just lied about him. And I've often thought this. After all of that, after all that you see of Jesus' life, he did miracles that you couldn't explain and you saw it with your own eyes. And then he says, I'm going to raise again and he does it and you knew he was dead under Roman authority. He comes back three days later and he shows himself to hundreds of people and the, the, the guards knew it and the Jews knew it. They knew he was... At that point, folks, can you just bow in humility and say, he is king, he is God. What proof are we waiting for? What does the atheist and the agnostic and the other world religion, what what do they all need? What do you want to see that you can't already see by credible eyewitness testimony through the historical reliable account of Holy Scripture? What on earth? Even secular sources wrote about the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The darkness is powerfully blinding, my friends. They didn't want to come to the light and live. They loved the darkness too much. They loved their sin. They missed the light. Here's how. Verse 15 and 19. They judged him according to the flesh. The sinful, ignorant, trapped in darkness flesh. And they didn't really know him and they didn't really know God. That's the reason anyone rejects Jesus. They are walking in darkness. They are walking in ignorance, in evil, and they don't know God. This is the motivation behind every theory that is out there that tries to discredit the account of the Gospels of the Old Testament of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, none of which can extinguish the light of Jesus which still shines. He shines through creation. He shines through the Bible. He shines through his people. There is no rational reason to reject the truth claims of Jesus Christ, especially considering the multitude, just the the plurality of the amount of witnesses Jesus has attesting to him. Once again, in verse 20, we see that no one arrested Jesus. Boy, they would have liked to, but they didn't because his hour had not yet come. And don't forget what that means, the sovereign plan of God. It wasn't God's timing yet for Jesus to be arrested and killed. Jesus didn't make any truth claim that he didn't 
fully back up. That he didn't substantiate. That he didn't provide overwhelming conclusive evidence for. To remove all reasonable doubt. Everything he said he substantiated. So when he says I am the light of the world. He backed it up by reflecting in himself. The glory and power of God the Father. The resurrection in and of itself is enough evidence for us to to trust Christ. Now here is what Jesus is saying to you this morning. I am the light of the world. If you follow me. If you follow me, Jerusalem church, you will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what Jesus is trying to get through to you. That's what he wants you to believe. He was even gracious enough to give you ample evidence for his truth claims. The point is, Jesus, follow Jesus and live. Follow Jesus and live. That's the point. Jesus said, whoever, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There is hope in Christ for everyone. Whoever follows, whoever follows, but you need to follow in order to have the life, in order to live. To follow Jesus is to be his disciple, to get behind him, to drop everything, to receive him as master, as Lord, as Savior, as rabbi, as teacher. To follow Jesus is to swear allegiance to Jesus alone. The first benefit of following Jesus is you avoid walking in darkness. Consider the price that we pay for walking in darkness, the price that someone would pay. The darkness conceals the truth, truth that is really helpful, truth that makes a difference in your life and eternity. Let's say that that friends of the family uh, give you a, a little weekend retreat in the woods, and so you go up with either a friend or a spouse or or maybe a sibling or something. And so as you're enjoying, enjoying your weekly uh, weekend retreat there, uh, all of a sudden your, your spouse or your friend or whoever you're with becomes deathly ill. And you need to get them to the hospital immediately. And so you take them out to the car and they pass out. And so you kind of gently try to push them into the car and you get inside the door and you crank the ignition and all of a sudden you're struck blind. You, you just, you can't see. And, and so all light is gone. All vision is gone. All you have is complete darkness and you start to panic because you know the, the seriousness of the situation. Your sense of direction is gone. You don't know where to, to go. The, the distances are imperceivable and, and, and you don't know. Signs and landmarks just disappear and you have little time to spare. So in desperation and in terror, you hit the gas and you start to move forward and, and you're okay for a little while until you crush into something and you don't even know what you hit and so you hit reverse and and you back up and you crush into something again and you just don't know what you're hitting you don't know what is out there you know you could make it if you only had some light you could spare your friend if you could only see but the darkness conceals everything that is helpful for you to know the way the darkness conceals every critical piece of information you need to get to the hospital. You are completely helpless and completely disoriented. Friends, this is spiritual darkness. Except everyone in spiritual darkness can perceive and experience this world with vivid sight. We can see what's happening around us, tangible things that make sense to us in part But the meaning and significance and purpose behind it all is hidden beneath darkness. We can't make sense of anything. We don't know why we keep hitting into things. 
It's all buried. Jesus said, John 12, 35, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. And that's just it. The darkness conceals where it is we should go. The darkness purposefully hides the very thing that we need the most, the light of life. We are dead in the dark. I just want you to think about this. With all the struggles and challenges of life, imagine having no explanation for anything, no purpose in anything, just mindlessness. You, You don't know how to make sense of anything. Spiritual darkness offers you nothing but spiritual misery and death. It's a terrifying life to live in the darkness. Even if your life is defined by temporal success and happiness and ease, what we all tend to gravitate towards. Walking in spiritual darkness conceals the transcendent success and happiness and ease only known in the warmth of the light. The second benefit of following Jesus is we receive the light of life. He came into our darkness and he shined the glory of God so that we could see. Now the pain and struggle have purpose because reality is exposed All things for the glory of God. All things for our greatest enjoyment and pleasure in the glory of God. Each one of us is is lost in this labyrinth of dark tunnels deep beneath the ground as we wander around aimlessly until Jesus comes as the blazing torch and says, follow me, and he leads us out and we follow him as he navigates us to freedom and joy of life in him. What Jesus said in 8.12 parallels what he said in John 12.46. I have come into the world as the light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Follow, belief, faith. Follow, faith. There's a connection. To follow Jesus is to have unwavering faith in Jesus. Following him is trusting him. Never forget John 1.4. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the light of life. Think about photosynthesis. Light is life for the plants. The sun's light shines on a plant and within the chloroplast, the green pigment called chlorophyll absorbs the sunlight and converts it to energy which gives light to the plant. The sun is Christ. We are the plants. The chlorophyll is faith and by grace through faith, Jesus gives us life as the light. The life is in the light. Jesus is the light of the world. If you follow the light and the light is in front of you, it's leading you and you can benefit from its light. But if you turn against the light, it's just shining in your eyes and it's blinding you and creating darkness because you refuse to come to Christ. And so this intensity builds and it keeps you in the dark. If you oppose Christ, then you'll find that your heart is growing colder and colder until it just ices over, until the sun burns out. Now, Jesus never burns out, but in you, in that constant end rejection, you will live in eternal darkness. Opposing Christ is spiritual blindness. Opposing Christ is darkness. You want the light in front of you. You want to follow the light. Folks, it's simple. It's simple. Perhaps your life right now is a little messy, a little confusing, a little perplexing, a little befuddling. Does anyone use that? I don't know. You you may be dealing with something that you can't really make sense of. It's hard to explain. You're like, why, God, am I going through this? Jesus is shining. He not only can help you understand to expose those things in the darkness, but he can lead you through. He can lead you through. I'm just pleading. 
Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. Come into the light. Leave the darkness. Follow him. Trust in where he's taking you. Trust in where he's taking us. Let him shine. Let him shine in you. Jesus is still shining. He is shining. He is the light of the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your rich grace and for shining Jesus upon us. We thank you for the truth of your word and I pray that it goes forth with great effect. God, thank you for all that you have done for us. As we sing this last hymn, holy, 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 we're talking about you, we're talking about your son and I pray that the warmth of this song, the warmth of the truth of this song would, would just hit us Hit our hearts and warm us. Help us to enjoy this great light of your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.